Selamat datang kembali semuanya. Welcome to the inaugural episode of season three of the Indo Techno Podcast. It is such a pleasure to finally get back behind the podcast microphone again. It's been an indulgent three months since we last wrapped up season two in late 2021. Now, we try to kick up each season by bringing on as guests individuals with as broad and authoritative a view of Indonesia's tech scene as possible. If you have followed the country's tech sector in the English language media, there is no way you could have escaped the very talented and timely reporting of today's guest. Fanny Potkin is the Southeast Asia technology correspondent at Reuters. She's been with the leading global news organization for nearly five years, much of that time physically based in Jakarta. Fanny, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for the kind introduction and thanks for having me, Ellen. You're very welcome. Now, Fanny, I have to say, I thought I'd gotten to know you quite well over our several copies in both Jakarta and Singapore. However, I open up your LinkedIn profile and I see that your educational career spans at least four different jurisdictions. Let's say you've studied at Chinese University in Hong Kong, Shanghai, Jiaotong Dashia in China, Sciences Po in France, and McGill University in Canada. What does one make of all of this? I guess that I have very diverse interests. I had a bit of a weird childhood. I grew up in Southeast Asia and I have French and American passports. And in university, I got really interested into the rise of China and thus wanted to spend time in Shanghai and Hong Kong, which were quite unique experiences. Fantastic. Now, digging even more deeply into your past, your educational past, that is, I note that your master's thesis was based on fieldwork conducted in Myanmar and China and titled quote-unquote, the end of non-interference, examining Chinese diplomatic intervention in civil wars. Tell us more about that. I got very interested in the role of China in peace negotiations in Myanmar, where China, very contrary to its public stance, ended up taking a very active role to try to drive negotiations and civil wars at its border and got to meet a lot of different officials, Burmese, Chinese officials, people involved in armed rebel groups activist. It was really interesting. And the area that that focused on Kachin was quite interesting because it's both very Chinese and very Southeast Asian. And in a weird way, Myanmar is actually what got me into tech reporting because Myanmar had and still has, though it's very sad, a very nascent budding tech scene full of really smart entrepreneurs. Some of my first articles as a journalist were to cover the first e-wallet in Myanmar, Wave Money, which still exists today. I was, I believe, the first interview that the CEO had, and now they are used even more after the coup and to cover entrepreneur meetings where the electricity would go off for hours in the middle of the meetings. And it remains a really fascinating place. It leapfrogged from no internet to smartphones. You have lived to tell. I spent the entirety of my master's thesis in the basement of a library, so very similar experience. Now, you also describe your time between 2011 and 2017 as having served as a freelance journalist in Myanmar, along with Thailand, Laos, and China. What were some of the highlights of that period of your life? That's a hard question. I guess I, I really loved covering the budding Myanmar tech scene. As a freelance reporter, you cover all kinds of weird and interesting projects. So I covered politics, 
I also covered wizards in Myanmar, where I went to hunt for real-life wizards, black magic in Thailand. That was really interesting, and I got to travel a lot, which I really loved. You would clearly make the ideal dinner guest. I'm sure these were just scratching the surface with these stories. So, Fanny, what is the one project, story, beat, or what have you from this era that you will truly never forget? It's a good question. I actually have to think about that one. It's a bit, that one's a bit of a hard one for me, just because I'm always forward thinking in my projects. One of my last projects, an interesting project before I moved to Indonesia was we covered the North Korean art market for Reuters and how China became the main market for North Korea to sell its art to. And almost every single ministry, government agencies in North Korea have their own art studio and painting. It's a main source of money for the regime. And China has become a massive consumer of such works to the point that in true Chinese entrepreneurial fashion, there is even fakes of very famous North Korean artists that are being sold on Chinese marketplaces. But that was really fascinating for me. And one of the reasons that they figured out that it was fakes was because the fakes started portraying nudes, which is banned in North Korean art. So for that project, I was tracking sellers and collectors across the UK, in Korea, experts, and trying to basically understand the North Korean art market with one of my colleagues in China. I think that's one of my favorite projects before I returned to the region for Reuters. So China has, if you will, Chairman Mao pop art. Does North Korea have the same representing their dear leader, do you know? Absolutely. It's not as poppy, but it is really interesting. There's a limit to this. It's still propaganda art, but a lot more experimental and innovative than you would expect. So I found that really fascinating. But they have to do this within strict rules established by the regimes. Several of these countries that we've mentioned so far are not exactly known for protections of journalistic freedom. How have you dealt with that? How do you think about that? That was definitely harder when I was a freelancer. It is a continuing issue, I think, for journalists in Asia. I am privileged to a certain degree in two ways because I'm reporting in countries that are not my own and I have two Western passports, to be completely honest, which means that most likely if I was going to be jailed for my reporting, more likely I would have governments backing me. That's not the case for local reporters. And two of my colleagues in Myanmar spent a year and a half in jail for their reporting. That's something that I feel very privileged to be at Reuters. It tries to do as much as it can for the safety of its reporters, but it's definitely, and in Southeast Asia included, become a much, much tougher environment to report. And that's definitely true in Myanmar, where a lot of journalists are in hiding or had to run away from the country. But it is true as well for countries like Indonesia or Thailand, where it has become increasingly hard to report stories and where they are facing pressure from multiple sources. And for some of those countries, possible jail time. Wow. I think my greatest job hazard has been running out of Nespresso pods. So this really all puts it in perspective. That's a serious issue as well. Running out of coffee is one of my worst fears. Tell me about it. Now, you've spent the past five years with Reuters. Tell us how you originally came to cover the Indonesia tech beat. I knew the rest of the region really well. It's harder to get visas to report in Indonesia than the rest of the region. It's a very lengthy process. You need three different permits and it's completely illegal to show up in the country and to do reporting. So Indonesia was really new to me. I came to Indonesia as the business reporter for Reuters and I started obviously covering tech. It was really exciting. 
remains very exciting with companies like GoTo, Traveloka and the like. And then pretty much 60% of my job as an Indonesia business reporter became technology. So Reuters eventually transformed my job to cover the region more broadly. So that is how I came to the region. Indonesia remains a really exciting place and I'm very grateful that I get a a chance to work both on Indonesia and in Indonesia. Would love to drill down a little further by simply asking you, what have been the most memorable moments in your career covering Indonesia tech? You have heard questions. My job as a technology reporter at Reuters is a little particular because on the one hand, I'm covering unicorns and financial rounds for major companies. On the other hand, I also cover politics like cybersecurity and disinformation. So some things that have been memorable for me in Indonesia, both good and bad, has been we covered how Indonesian government officials during elections were using trolls for hire. In Indonesia, they call them buzzers to push out their campaigns and to attack each other. We also tracked the Indonesian army. We also tracked basically a network of fake news sites on Papua to the Indonesian army. Disagrees that the news on those sites is fake, but some of their uh, senior officials did recognize the ownerships of those sites. So I think an incredible moment for me that represents Indonesia in many ways was to talk to a senior troll for hire that had a team of 20. And he took out, he calls it a menu that had over 600 fake accounts that he had built over several years on Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram that he would sell. And this is someone who had worked in the past for a former president, many senior officials as well in previous administrations. And he would sell those big accounts to companies and to politicians for campaigns or for particular moments for promotions. So for me, that was really interesting because it was the disinformation for higher industry meets Indonesia as one of the world's top five social media markets. So the new digital industry globally embodied in this one guy with his carefully crafted multiple fake accounts. It's a very weird model of the digital economy. Ah, yes. The many toxic combinations between technology and politics that we've uncovered just over the past few election cycles. Now, Fanny, what aspects of the evolution of Indonesia tech have really surprised you? I've always been extremely impressed by the Indonesia tech sector and by what you could do. In fact, until even now, Singapore remains so far behind in what you can do with a QR code between Jakarta and Singapore. I immediately loved being able to pay for street food in Jakarta with GoPay or Ovo. The fact that my colleagues were paying taxes using those different QR codes, their house taxes, bills, what you could do in Indonesia completely amazed me. And the fact that though there is very much the influence of Chinese super apps, it was really its own model. I guess the growth of the sector has continuously impressed me, just how fast the digital economy has continued to grow, how many more people are on smartphones and the rise on this. This accelerated during COVID as well, but I couldn't have predicted the level of e-payments and what you could do with the super apps in Indonesia today. So that's been very interesting. Absolutely. Now, what themes in the Indonesian tech sector in your mind are going to be big this year? I think it's going to be a very interesting year for Indonesia. So several things. I think, first of all, it's the IPOs. It's going to be a very big year in Indonesian IPOs. The really big one is obviously GoTo. And GoTo is, from what we're hearing from market sources and from sources on the IPO, they're definitely hitting the markets this year. 
However, you have the Ukraine impact that's definitely in the background. And while before we were hearing that the IPO is going to be at least 1, 1 billion, 1.5 billion, now there's chatter that it could be a smaller IPO for 800 million. I'd be surprised if that happens, but definitely possible. So I think it's going to be really interesting to see, especially after the Bukalapak IPO was loved by individual investors. There was massive interest. I think we're going to see that again for the go-to IPO, but it's a very different market. And the go-to IPO is coming after a very hard few weeks for Grab and C. So what that means for their US IPO is going to be very interesting and what impact that has on their Indonesian IPO will also be interesting. And then in the background, you have the much quieter Traveloka, which has registered for an IPO when it was still planning to do a spot. So that will be an interesting thing to watch as well. The travel market is opening. The domestic travel market is doing still well in Southeast Asia. And it was a company that was profitable before COVID and that had COVID completely destroyed sector and had to make a fair amount of cuts. So that will be very interesting. Traveloka was the first of all the unicorns to be talked to for the market. And it, it has been among the most cautious and quietest to actually get to the public market. So I could also see it being one of the firms that delays its IPO by several months as well until the market is a bit more stable. And then you have the Indonesian-built Chinese exec-created GNT, which we were hearing very solidly was preparing for an IPO in Hong Kong and is also in the middle of doing a massive expansion to LATAM and Brazil where they will be helping Shopee and are in talks with Shopee, but remains at its core founded as an Indonesian company and one that has done extremely well. For GNT, we're also hearing that they may wait on their IPO. They're not in a hurry to IPO either, but it's going to be an interesting year. And this is, of course, coming after Grab shares. I think they plunged 40% and then C has had a market decline. So it's definitely a hard time for Southeast Asian companies. There's not as much of the market eagerness and it's going to be very interesting to see how the companies all deal with this and what the market response is going to be. But on the other hand, what will definitely help go to is massive new investors coming to stock platforms. There is a, a lot of very promising Ajab stock bit marketplace stock platforms, and that will definitely help their IPOs to a level. The second big thing for me in Indonesia is going to be regulation. There are massive regulations that are about to hit internet and social media companies. The government is still finalizing what they're going to look like. It's still unclear at this point, but they require takedowns basically in certain amounts of time. And they put a lot more pressure on the companies themselves, both global and local companies in terms of staffing and the like. Reuters will have more on that, so please keep reading us. I think that will be a big thing because it will change the game. It's regulations that are much closer to what India or Vietnam have done on internet companies and what that means for Indonesia, which is obviously one of the world's most populous countries, biggest social media market really remains to be seen, but I think it's going to be a big team. And then to conclude with this information as well, the election 2022 is going to be a big year, at least a starter year for the election. And what that means in terms of fake news, disinformation, and how the platforms cope with this is, I think, also going to be a big team as well. Looks like I've got a lot of interesting material to go through with upcoming episodes. More of a basic question, just reflecting on all of your many interviews, how would you describe the Indonesian entrepreneur, particularly in comparison to maybe his or her Western peer? More creative, to be honest, more creative, more innovative. I've always been just so impressed by Indonesian entrepreneurs. 
I think it's a real go-getter mentality. There is a real entrepreneurial spirit in Indonesia and there is a mentality to get things done and to basically find fixes for things. I won't say who told me this, but one of the things that I found very amusing and very reflecting of tech culture in Indonesia versus Singapore is when Gojek launched in Singapore, I asked the source of the company, what's the reaction? Are you having a lot of complaints? And they said, oh yeah, we've had a lot more complaints or comments and reactions than we've ever had in Indonesia for Singapore. Because the Singapore reaction was to say, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong. Well, in Indonesia, the idea is more like you deal with it. Both mentalities have pros and cons, but I think this mentality for startups and entrepreneurs has really succeeded for the countries. Yeah, the creativity and the innovation and the way people find solutions in Indonesia, it continues to amaze me. And I think it's really fantastic how much that's stretching to such diverse sectors. Now, Fanny, going back to that master's thesis, I mentioned that you finished at McGill, in which you studied one angle of China's presence in Southeast Asia being Myanmar. How would you characterize Chinese involvement in Indonesia's tech sector? Have you seen any interesting connections or interactions there? Oh, definitely. It's a little sexist, but this is a popular analogy among Chinese investors and Chinese entrepreneurs in Indonesia. A Chinese entrepreneur once told me this was a senior guy, and then three other people mentioned the exact same analogy where they compared Alibaba to the mother, basically Chinese startups and Chinese founders and startups in the region because the company nags a lot and Tencent to the father because the company is much more hands-off. But both of them are wanting to be involved in the lives of their children or the startups in the region. Again, a bit sexist, but of an interesting analogy that shows how two of the biggest names in Chinese tech are interested in the region. Please don't come after me, Alibaba or Tencent. I promise that is what Chinese founders do say. It's been interesting. The China-Southeast Asia relation, I think, is, is going to be in a weird place. Because on the one hand, because of the U.S.-China tension, the crackdown, etc., there is a lot more interest for Chinese money to come to Southeast Asia, even more than before. There was a lot of interest before, but that has only grown. And after what happened to India, with India-China tensions, India is much less of an opportunity for Chinese founders or Chinese investors. So it's a lot of them is going to LATAM and a lot of them is going to Southeast Asia. And it's going to be interesting to see what that means. On the other hand, the Chinese regulatory crackdown is also having an impact on big Chinese companies who were meant to expand in the region. So I had several conversations this week on how major Chinese fintech firms who are planning to come to Southeast Asia have paused their expansion plans to the region because they're afraid of looking like they have too much overseas exposure to regulators in China which I find quite interesting. And I've heard of other major Chinese tech firms who have continued to invest in the region, but who've asked the firms in question not to come up publicly on the fact they've gotten those investments. So that's an interesting trend. And it's going to be interesting how that ends up with the China-Southeast Asia relations. There's also a lot of anti-China sentiment in the region. And sometimes I do think officials don't necessarily understand the Chinese tech sector or Southeast Asia tech sector as well. I've heard from officials, they were like, grab and go drag, they're controlled by their Chinese investor money. And I'm thinking, no, they're not at all. But there was this perception. This isn't an early story I did, I think in 2019, a very senior Indonesian fintech regulator, who's not at the job anymore, told me Chinese fintech companies, they're not good. They're against God. In Indonesia, we have God. China, they don't have God. This was on the record too, which I felt very interesting as well. So change, it's going to be a major team. And I'm curious as well, this is less for Indonesia, but more for Vietnam and other countries like this. 
whether we'll see China also trying to integrate that more into its supply chains as well. Excellent. So, Fanny, what do the cards hold for you going forward? Are you likely to stay in this part of the world for the foreseeable future, or do you envision making another move? I really enjoy being in Southeast Asia. At least I look forward to being here. As long as the region will have me, please don't kick me out, governments of the region. At least not yet. I'm looking forward to being here for a bit more. I have been, I'm assuming like you, out of Indonesia. I was in Singapore when Indonesia closed down, waiting for a new visa. So I haven't been able to go back in a while. So I'm looking forward to using the VTLs and spending a fair amount of time in Jakarta and hopefully in smaller cities like Bandung and the like and meeting tech companies and startups. It's, I think, generally going to be a very weird and interesting year for tech and Southeast Asia. I think it's going to be quite exciting. So I'm not looking to leave anytime soon. Yes, weird is good. Now, Fanny, over the past half hour or so, we've talked about a lot of the growth potential in the region. Do you worry about anything? There are some trends that I do think are interesting, perhaps more negative or less positive. One of them is definitely how the negativity in markets will impact Southeast Asian companies. That will be quite interesting and perhaps not always warranted for the companies that are going to get hit by this. The second thing that I'm hearing is that there has been a bit of slowdown in consumer growth for a bunch of markets. And I think that is going to be quite interesting in what that's going to mean. I was also hearing of Southeast Asian companies who wanted to go to India to find new markets, which usually it has been the opposite, Indian companies coming here. However, C, getting free fire banned by the Indian government, has scared a lot of those companies who had plans to go to India and now pausing their plans. And I think that will be interesting. I think the India-Southeast Asia relationship is going to be interesting with the sea free fire band. Reuters reported that the Singaporean government got involved to try to clarify the situation. Obviously, that had a very big hit on sea market cap because their drop in gaming plans. So in a way, that in itself, what happens with the ban will impact both India and Southeast Asia, but will impact obviously the stock for C and that will impact a lot of other Southeast Asian companies who are looking to go to market or who are readying for IPOs or the like. So that's going to be very interesting for me. The other thing is we're seeing a reverse in SPAC sentiment in the US and you still have a fair amount of Southeast Asian companies who are looking to SPAC. So that's going to be interesting. I'm very curious whether the Bridgetown One SPAC, which had negotiations with Travelocca fail, will actually pick up a partner company to create a SPAC. I'm quite curious. For me, that will be an interesting mark of market sentiment because they were one of the most high-profile SPACs in the region for Southeast Asia. And then the other thing is regulation for Southeast Asia in general. I think we are seeing governments crack down on internet and social media companies both because they're worried about fake news and disinformation and not being able to control social media. But that can hurt negatively the digital economy and e-commerce and also freedom of speech. So we're seeing a lot of governments, whether it's in Indonesia or in the Philippines or in Vietnam, who want to control companies more and crack down on content, but also crack down on taxes on the companies. And the impact of that remains to be seen, but there is a lot of potential through government overreach it goes both ways. Although on the other hand, most of the countries in the region have a big disinformation issue. So it's understandable that governments are worried, but the potential for abuse is quite massive. A very expansive discussion we've had. Tremendous to have you join us today. And I always come away from our discussions feeling as though I've fully updated my files on the Indonesian tech scene. Really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure to be here with you. 
Fantastic. We hope our listeners have enjoyed today's episode. As always, please consider sharing any feedback that you have about the Indotechno podcast with us. Thank you.